Colossians 3, and I will read from verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. May God bless the reading of His Word. Last week, <clears throat> while Deb and I were getting ready for dinner, you, you, those of you who are empty nesters know what this is like. You cook a couple meals during the week, and then you pretty much microwave the rest of the week. It's always so cool when you go three days without cooking. And she's got her thing going on, and I got my thing going on. And, and uh, she looks at me, and she says, you stole my fork. And I did steal her fork. I didn't know it was her fork. There was a fork on the counter. It had a knife and a spoon and a fork, and I apparently stole her fork. And I said, well, you have a complaint against me. And so you have to bear and forgive me, and my stealing your fork made you conform into the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't suggest that you do that in your kitchen, but the reality is, as we, we can laugh about that, but it is true that as we rub shoulders with others, especially those we live with, especially those that we fellowship with, especially those that we recreate with, there are many opportunities for us to have complaints and many opportunities to bear with one another. And the only way we can really do that, the only way we can bear with the complaints of others, the only way that we can forgive one another is on account of the transformation that's taken place in our lives by God taking us from, from darkness to light, from death to life, from the kingdom and the power of Satan into the kingdom of Christ, and he's transformed us, he's making us new, and now because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we can put off the old man, and we can put on the new. And that's what Paul's been talking about now for the first three chapters of Colossians. And like I said last week, there's, this, there's a natural expectation in this particular text that these individuals will spend time with one another. Paul did not have to encourage these believers to spend time together. All of the folks in the Colossian church lived within walking distance of each other. And unless they were extremely wealthy, and very few of them were, the historians would tell us that most of the homes uh, were small, were damp, and were even smelly. Where some of us actually enjoy the days when we never have to leave the house. That would be relatively unheard of in the first century. Uh, remember, you and I have heat, and some of us have air conditioning, and probably enough food in the house to last for a long, long time. We have a refrigerator and running water, electricity and a toilet and, and comfortable furniture to sit in and books to read and Netflix and Amazon Prime and the internet to surf and a garage with tools. Why would you want to go anywhere at any time when you have it all there? Why would you want to see anybody? You know, we live in the pajama culture, don't we? 
As soon as you can get home, as fast as you can and get your pajamas on or your comfortable clothes on, then that makes life just perfect. But that would not have been the life of those in the city of Colossae in the first century. Their homes weren't comfortable. They spent time outside with one another, and they lived in close proximity to each other, and they wouldn't have any idea what it would be like to simply see their brothers and sisters in Christ from 11 or so on a Sunday to 12.30 on Sunday. I, I mean, how much bearing and forgiving do we really have to do when we only see each other for an hour and a half a week? Unless someone takes your seat. Those of you who own a row, I know, I know where you sit. Can you imagine if a visitor got here before you did and took your seat? That, that would be a reason to have a complaint. And I say that in jest, but I know of a church member at a previous church who somebody sat in her row, a visitor, and she asked them to please get out of their row. It's not a way to build a church. I don't think the visitor ever came back. But when you're rubbing shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ on a regular basis, seeing them in the marketplace and working in the field, literally hundreds of feet apart from one another in terms of even where you live, uh, offenses are going to be fairly frequent. Now, I'm not suggesting we go back to the first century. I like my warm house, and I like my cool house in the summer. But what this tells me, I think, and should tell all of us, is what was ingrained in the culture of the letter to those this was written to is something that we have to work at. And I've said this before, just to encourage all of us, uh, even though we're in a COVID world right now, to, to be more aware that gathering as a body, first and foremost, is fundamental, not supplemental. And, and we do miss those right now who are rightfully not here because of COVID. And, but, and it's also a blessing to see people on Sundays, and it's a blessing to see people who are interacting with one another and greeting each other and saying hello. And the, and the desire is for our Sunday morning encounters to springboard into other relationships so that we can be bearing each other's burdens and can be sharing with one another. Um, in the last year or so, there's obstacles to this, but just an encouragement to, to stay in touch with one another and get to know one another, uh, whether it's by phone or text. And, and, uh, and as we do, as we do rub shoulders together more regularly, just like in marriage and just like in your home life, the more we're together, the more we will likely, uh, I guess, take someone's fork, so to speak. Uh, we will hurt and offend each other because we're all sinners. We're all works in progress. And those sinners, Paul is commanding us to live in harmony. In fact, turn back a few pages in your Bible to the book of Philippians. Turn back a few pages in the book of Philippians. And I want you to notice uh, chapter 4, verse 2. <coughs> Chapter 4, verse 2. Apparently, there's a couple of ladies in this church in Philippi, and they're just not getting along. They, they, they were not walking in harmony. Paul writes in verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? That there's two later ladies who have labored with Paul and labored with this brother whose name is Clement, and they've obviously worked together 
working for the gospel, fellow workers, even with others in the body of Christ. And at this point in the history of, of their church right there, they have, a, they have a broken relationship. They don't have harmony. They, they don't have unity. I mean, one's on this side of the church on Sunday morning, and one's over here on this side of the church on Sunday morning. And when they have their monthly potlucks, if Yodi is downstairs eating, Syntyche's not going to go in there. I'm not going to get down there and sit in that basement with her. They're divided from one another. They're just not getting along. And Paul's encouraging this unnamed individual to get involved and help them not to agree with one another, but to what? Agree in the Lord. You see, as I said last week, it's not so much that we are going to agree on all the events and things going on in our lives and the culture and politics and everything else, but we can agree in the Lord. First and foremost, believing in the main tenets of orthodoxy, virgin birth, Christ is God, man's born in sin, Christ is our mediator, and so on. But agreeing on the Lord also would mean that the Bible directs our lives. And we're commanded to love one another, even love our enemies, and bear with one another the complaints we have with each other. You know, agreeing in the Lord gives no room for broken and divisive relationships among Christians. Agreeing in the Lord would mean that we understand that all that God has done for us in Christ, that we're all works in progress, we're all putting off the old self, and we're all putting on the new. And it's that understanding that is at the very core and the very center of our harmony and our unity. And that's where Paul is going here in Colossians 3. When you and I truly understand all that God has done for us in Christ, when we understand our sin and we understand the forgiveness that we've received, that's what gives us the grace and the power and the humility to, to put on Christ or live as Jesus lived or walk in his steps. So as we go back to Colossians 3, last week we saw that this, we started here by putting on a compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And what we noticed was that though Paul was commanding all believers to, to wear these qualities, to put them on or behave like Christ, it is more than likely that not everybody in the church will do this perfectly, including ourselves. And when church people lack compassion or they're unkind, that gives us the opportunity not to act unkind back. Rather, we're now able to act toward them in humility, in meekness, and in patience, realizing that their offenses toward us, though they're wrong, are still opportunities for us to act like Christ toward them, whether they are acting like Christ or not. And this is how we maintain unity. So with this overarching theme of unity in the church throughout the text, we've, been, we've become keenly aware that unity starts with me. Now, not me as the pastor, but just simply me as a Christian. And all of us can say, and we should say it together right now, Unity always starts with me. Let's say that together. Unity always starts with me. 
So regardless if anyone in the church is compassionate or kind, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit living in and through us, we can maintain unity with others by exhibiting the humility of Christ, meaning that we're going to put their needs above ours, putting on the meekness of Christ, which we found out last week means we will submit to God's dealings with us even when they're difficult because they're permitted by God for our chastening and our purifying. So even our mistreatment is meant for our good and His glory. And it gives us the opportunity to respond in a Christ-like manner like Jesus did in 1 Peter 2 where He entrusted Himself to the one who judges justly. Now, quite honestly, for some, this is a perspective on Christianity that some have just never heard before because we're not clamoring and claiming our rights to be treated a certain way. Christ didn't do that, and he's our example. He gave up his rights, seeing others as more important than himself, dying to self, being kind to the unkind, seeing the slights and insensitivities of others in the church as part of my growing in Christ, and then making allowances for their shortcomings or making allowances for their immaturity. In essence, we're allowing others around us to grow in Christ because God's perfecting them to the day of Christ Jesus. Even though their slow growth may affect us, and quite honestly, they're allowing us to grow as well because we're being perfected to the day of Christ Jesus and our shortcomings and our slow growth gives them the responsibility and the opportunity to respond Christ-like toward us. Now, we ended last week by noticing that the patience we're to give one another to, in order to maintain unity is a definition we don't want to read twice because it seems way too hard. The ability not to become frustrated and enraged, but to make allowances for others' shortcomings and to tolerate their exasperating behavior. I mean, that, that just nails everybody in this room. You would not like it if I took your fork. I wouldn't like it if you took my fork. Your behavior would be totally exasperating. And remember last week, I mentioned that the word complaints actually does imply blame, which tells us that in a sense, in a human sense, we could say that we're justified with how we feel because the shortcomings are real, the behavior is exasperating, and the complaints are legitimate, and these are against us as well. And yet the command is firm. Bear with and forgive the way Christ has forgiven you. Now, since the subject of forgiveness is so crucial to our Christian life, we're going to spend all of our time today just on verse 13. And since I have more to say than I could possibly say in the time I've had, I did add that helpful sheet in your bulletin by biblical counselor Jonathan Holmes that gives eight common myths about forgiveness that will help add to what I say this morning. Again, don't read it now. That would be rude because I'm preaching. But when you take it home, you can read it and look at that, and I think it'll be super helpful. It's good to see what the myths are, and I'll be referring to that a little bit as I go. You'll hear it from time to time. So after we're told to put on patience, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, we're to be bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. And understand that forgiveness, we need to give to others. We first have to understand the magnitude of our sin before a holy God. And second, understand the forgiveness we have in Christ. And most of the sermon will just be on those two points. So we're being called to be patient. We're being called to bear with the wrong and insensitive behavior of others. And the word bearing is sometimes called forbearance. It's a strengthened form of patience. It's an enduring patience. It's a long suffering. And the way to do this is to forgive others the way God has forgiven us. Now, I want to say this again, and I said it last week, this is really important, that the bearing and forgiving here in this text has nothing to do with the kind of sins that Paul would want us to confront and rebuke. Nor are these the kind of sins that should be reported to law enforcement authorities. There are churches that have taken this passage way too far, and others like it, and they choose to bear and forgive individuals who have committed crimes, maybe against their wives or their children, or, or maybe they've participated in the kind of sin that's described in 1 Corinthians 5, where a man is sleeping with his stepmother. It's not what he's talking about here. Crime should be reported, and some sins must be rebuked, they must be confronted, and even brought before the church if the person is not repentant of their sin. This is talking about the, the run-of-the-mill, daily things that we do that can cause big problems if we let them fester, they cause bitterness and wrath and anger and so on. And the way Paul states it in Ephesians 4 is real similar. He simply says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Bearing with our legitimate complaints ends in forgiving others in the body of Christ. The way God bears with us and has forgiven us in Christ, the question really is now, what does that mean? Now, there are, there's two Greek words in particular for the word forgiveness. One means to remove the guilt, pardon, and forgive. And the, and the commentator states, it's important to note that the focus in the meaning of this word is upon the guilt of the wrongdoer, not upon the wrongdoing itself. The event of the wrongdoing is not undone, but the guilt resulting from such an event is pardoned, which is so helpful, because that means there are still consequences for the wrongdoing, even though the guilt is gone, which we know is true. We know that in David's life, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he was forgiven when he confessed it, and he was pardoned, and he was restored, and his guilt was gone. But the events weren't undone, and the consequences still came. The second Greek word refers to uh, giving grace or kindness to someone, often in a manner that there's no reciprocation in view. And the forgiveness that we have from God combines both of these. Our guilt is removed, though there still might be consequences. He chooses not to hold our sins against us, and he gives us something that's free that we can never repay and we can never reciprocate. And quite honestly, I think one of the most important things about forgiveness is that it begins with us fully understanding the forgiveness we've received from God through Christ. 
So it starts with a proper theology and a proper understanding of our own sin, doesn't it? The understanding of our sinfulness or our propensities to disobey, to violate God's word, even as believers, is crucial to our understanding of salvation. And it does affect how we respond to the offenses of others. Uh, let me have you turn to 1 Timothy 1 for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm only going to read one verse, but I want you to read it for yourself. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Paul says an interesting, I think amazing statement about himself. 1 Timothy 1, 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What's amazing about that statement is Paul makes it in the present tense. He's not talking about his pre-converted state. He's saying right now, as an apostle, as one who's already written much of the word of God, as a growing believer, as someone who's maturing in Christ, he is calling himself the chiefest. He's calling himself the foremost. He's calling himself the most, most of the sinners. And it's not a false humility. He believes this. And it doesn't mean that he's involved in any heinous sin. But what it does mean is that the closer we draw to God through Christ, the more we put off the old man, the more we put on the new, the more we grow into his image, the more we grow in grace, the more we have a sense of our own sin. And now as we're closer to God, we're closer to his holiness and we see our sinfulness in a greater light. Uh, we sang holy, holy, holy this morning. And if you're familiar with those three words, we know that comes from Isaiah chapter 6 where the seraphim, they, they, the cherubim, they shouted out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah was there and saw the vision and heard the words, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah, like Paul, had been serving God faithfully. He's, pro he's God's prophet. He's God's man. He's speaking God's word to the nation of Israel. He would have been considered a godly, growing believer. And here, as he sees God in all of his holiness, the only thing that he sees is his sin. It exposes his sinfulness. Our growth as believers should never produce pride. Our growth as believers should never produce self-righteousness. The more mature we come, the more sinful we feel, and therefore the more humble we should be. Because our growth toward God brings our sin to light and an even greater need for His grace and His mercy, which should produce such an overflowing heart of thankfulness for all that God has done for us in Christ. And understanding our sinfulness is crucial. Uh, when Jonathan Holmes encounters a couple who come in for counseling, and quite honestly, that, uh, that uh, particular sheet I gave you is related to counseling couples, but it, but it certainly applies to all of us. When he's counseling a couple who comes in holding on to, to bitterness 
and grudges and offenses against each other. Like one young lady who, who came in, he said he was, he was early on in his ministry, and she came in with a ledger pad. And she had written down the last five years of offenses that her husband had done. And he was sitting right next to her. One of the first sessions, he, he says he, he was just exhausted after she shared it all. In these situations, the first place he goes is the doctrine of sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. He's not excusing the sin of the young man. But he wants both parties to understand their own sin. Because the more you understand your sin, the more compassion and grace you have for others who do sin, even when it happens to be against you. Holmes says that the culture buys the lie that humans are inherently good. And the church promotes the same message. So when individuals don't understand their own sin, and they don't understand their alienation from God, and, and they don't understand their, 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 their need for forgiveness, then they're unable to forgive others because they've never really received it. Never received God's free, full grace. Because forgiveness humbles you. And it moves you to be gracious to others. He writes, Only people who realize the magnitude of forgiveness they have in Christ are likely to grasp and show a measure of that forgiveness in their personal relationships. And then he states this line, and I put it in your bulletin because I thought it was so good. He said, The gospel is clear in its message. You are more sinful than you ever thought possible but you're also more accepted and loved than you ever dared imagine. And it's that understanding that gives us the grace to forgive and bear with others. Um, turn for a moment to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. <clears throat> Psalm 32, David's the author, and he, and he states, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. This is what God's forgiveness looks like. When we're forgiven, our sin is covered, no longer seen, no longer exposed, and God does not count our sin against us. And the command for us is to go do likewise to our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It's not holding their sin against them. In a sense, we're asking just to let it go. We give to others what God has given to us. Now clearly, clearly, we all know this. Forgiveness is easier when a transaction takes place. Forgiveness is easier when I come to you and I say, I was so wrong for my unkind words. I was so wrong for my outburst. I was so wrong for belittling you. you know, I was wrong for whatever it might be, fill in the blank. Will you please forgive me? When someone truly comes, Admitting they're wrong and asking for forgiveness, not only is it easier, it means there's a full and a complete transaction. And that transaction is what leads to reconciliation. However, you and I have no power over those 
who offend and don't ask for forgiveness. It doesn't give us the right to harbor bitterness until they ask. What we can't say, I'll forgive them if they ask, or worse, I won't forgive them until they ask. Because what this is talking about is having a spirit and an attitude and a disposition of forgiveness whether they ask or not. And this, though does not bring full reconciliation, is still crucial to maintain unity in the church. I'm certain that all of us in here know and have individuals in our lives that we've had difficulty with. And there may have, they may have said things or done things that are unkind. They either may not know it or they do know it, but if you brought it up, it would do nothing but create more issues. It's not something that would require any kind of church discipline, and there may never be an apology. And what sets us apart as believers should be a gracious spirit of forbearance and forgiveness that maintains harmony and maintains unity instead of bitterness, anger, and resentment that splits and divides. Remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. You can turn there. I'm just going to read one verse. Story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. We know that he comes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance, which basically he's saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. He takes the money and he runs off to a distant land and, and the King James says he spent it on riotous living. Uh, it didn't take long for God to step in, provides uh, miraculously and sovereignly a famine in the land and this young man is suddenly has nothing and he's longing to feed from the pods that the pigs are eating that he is actually now feeding. He comes to his senses and he starts thinking about the fact that how many of my father's hired men are, are eating far better than I am. So I'm going to go back and he rehearses exactly once what he wants to say to his dad when he finally sees him. And we pick it up in verse 20 of Luke 15. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father, before the son had said a word, saw him, felt compassion for him, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. And the Greek tense where it says kissed him is a continuous action. It means he kissed him and he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. Clearly, living with a spirit of forgiveness, an attitude of forgiveness, and a readiness to forgive when the time came. And this is how we're to bear and forgive the complaints we have against others in the church. Our disposition, our attitude needs to be there. The transaction and full reconciliation will not take place unless there's confession and pardon. But unity can be maintained by our spirit of forgiveness and forbearance for each other's shortcomings and exasperating behavior, mine and yours included. Uh, turn with me for a moment to Matthew 18, and this is where we'll kind of wrap things up. 
Matthew 18. Forgiveness is such an important part of the Christian life. It's an important part of life in general. And the disciples obviously had, they had some of their own questions when it came to forgiveness. And in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, uh, Peter has, has a question. Verse 21, Matthew 18, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some translations say 70 times seven, but whether it's 77 or 490, that's a lot of times. Now, clearly, Peter is wondering if forgiveness has a limit. And according to some ancient literature, Peter's actually being very generous here with seven times. The Babylonian Talmud says three times was a limit. Three strikes you're out on forgiveness. Now, of course, Jesus changing everything by raising the stakes by literally infinity, endless times. Obviously, you shouldn't keep track. shouldn't go to your counseling session with a ledger pad with all of the sins that someone has committed against you. But listen to the parable that Jesus uses to make this point. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now stop there for a moment. Now, I put this in your bulletin to, to make this more clear. So if you look in your bulletin, I just want you to understand the amount of the, of the debt. This is for you math people, you guys that like math. You could check me on this if you want, but you have to have a pretty long calculator with lots of numbers. One talent is equivalent to 6,000 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So one talent is equal to 6,000 days wages. Now let's just set a day's wage at the potential um, new uh, minimum wage in the country if it does uh, go through. Let's set it at $15 an hour as the hourly rate. So that would be $120 a day for a day's wage. Which means... $120 times 6,000 equals 720,000, right? Okay, that's one talent. You have to multiply that by 10,000. So you take 720,000 and multiply by 10,000, the amount that of the debt was $7,200,000,000. So the debt this man owed to the master was equivalent to seven point two billion first century dollars i didn't figure out what that would be in today's economy but let me just say it was a lot now it's a debt i assume that's drawing interest daily a debt you can never pay if you earned a hundred thousand dollars a year it would take you seventy two thousand lifetimes to pay off that debt not including interest so when the servant asked for patience and declared he'd pay everything, he may have wanted to, but there is no way he could possibly pay the debt. So the master, in his mercy, 
because of his grace and kindness and compassion, longs, out, of, out of pity, he forgives the debt. And instead of he and his family being sold into slavery, he's released and he's forgiven. Not because the man had the resources to pay. Not because he could ever pay. But because of the master's love and his benevolence and he's full of grace and full of mercy. Now, how should that have made him feel? What response should he have had? Well, one of humble jubilation. One of joy and gladness and tears and humility and gratitude and a new desire to give to others what had been given by his master. But the parable goes on in verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. Now, a hundred denarii would be a hundred days wages. Same calculations for a day's wage, $15 an hour, $120 for the day. We're talking about $12,000. Not insignificant, but pennies. Pennies compared to $7.2 billion. If you broke it down further and did some division, you'd find that it's, it's like he was forgiven $6 million dollars and this guy owed him 10 cents. Six million dollars of forgiven debt, and he goes and he chokes and throws someone in prison because they owed him a dime. 10 pennies. Story goes on. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had ta- what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So instead of creating an attitude of humility, an attitude of gratefulness for the forgiveness that he received, he's cold, he's callous, he's vindictive, he's harsh, and clearly ungrateful. He's unable to forgive someone who owed him so little of what he was freed from even when the person pleaded with him the same way he pleaded with the master. And the ultimate consequence is he's now required to pay his entire debt. And the instruction or the punchline or the lesson of the parable comes in the last verse 35 when Jesus says, So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is what will happen to you if we do not forgive others from our hearts. You and I, or anyone who does not forgive, when they've been forgiven, will be placed under God's divine wrath, God's judgment, and pay the penalty for the debt we owe to God. So what Jesus is saying is, since I've forgiven you so much, you can forgive others, 
because in comparison to your sins against me, the sins against you are pennies. Now, don't read so far into the text. Parables are not meant to, to have major doctrinal theological perfect truths because this does not mean that you earn God's forgiveness by forgiving. It doesn't mean that. Because we know salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot earn salvation. But what it does mean is that when you're forgiven, you need to give others what God has given to you. Or to put it another way, forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in Colossians 3 bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also should you. And it starts with understanding the debt and the weight of our sin. As Holmes states, you're more sinful than you ever thought possible, but you're more accepted and loved than you dare ever dream or imagined. You know, the, the, the parable is so practical, isn't it? You sin against God, and you actually still sin against God, and you will continue to sin against God. And yet God demonstrated his love for you, and that while you're yet sinners, Christ died for you. And if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Your actions, your attitudes, your apathy, your selfishness, your thoughts, your rebellion, your lack of gratitude, your secret sins are all part of that $7.2 billion that you sinned against the God who created you. And in the church, there's a person who might speak ugly to you from time to time, who might neglect you. Some of us speak with a tone. Some of us are belligerent. Some of us are mean. But those sins are pennies compared to what we've done against God. We should be so grateful for the debt that God forgave us and we never had to pay. And now as a grateful, humble, forgiven sinner, unity in the church starts with you. So when someone slights you, and they will, when someone has an outburst against you, and they will, when someone neglects you, and they will, when someone in the church acts toward you like a non-Christian, let me everyone say it, and they will, <laughs> when your pastor sins against you and is unkind, and he will, <laughs> by the grace of God, you can be patient with and bear with and even forgive them because you can give them what you received. Because he forgave you a debt you could never repay, you can bear and forgive the offenses against you that will never compare to the forgiven offenses that we have against God. You can, by the grace of God, let it go. Not with clenched teeth, not with harboring bitterness and not holding it against them and counting it against them. You're giving them what God has done for you for Christ's sake. 
So factions and disagreements and misunderstandings and offenses in the body of Christ are just a normal part of body life together as believers. It would be fantastic if every time someone sinned against you or hurt you or offended you that they'd come quickly and ask for forgiveness and make it right. And you should. You should, absolutely. Those of us who do not admit we're wrong, those of us who do not ask for forgiveness quickly, those of us who do not forgive quickly, we are sinful, we are wrong, and we must ask ourselves before the Lord if we're even saved. Because Christian behavior by the Holy Spirit living in you makes you responsible for your sin and gives you the grace to forgive. So that's a self-check. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Because forgiven people are forgiving people. We should be quick to forgive. And we should be quick to ask for forgiveness. But the forbearance we've received and the mercy we've received and the grace we've received and the forgiveness we've received should just spill over into our lives so we can bear with those who have hurt us. And we can have that spirit and disposition of forgiveness to anyone whether they ask or not and therefore for the glory of Christ live in harmony with one another. Don't misunderstand me. We're not excusing the sins of others at all. Now as we continue in this text, we've already put some clothes on. Hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness, but we're still not completely dressed. Because now, next week, we have to drape everything over with love, which Paul says is the perfect bond of unity. Beloved, our, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And once we receive his mercy, may we, by the grace of God, be able to give it to others for his glory.